going to be continuing on now in uh, our study of the book of Luke. We took a break kind of right after Christmas, but now we're going to get back into that. It might seem a little bit odd that I'm going to be preaching on the birth of Christ this morning as it's uh, February, but who says that you can only study uh, the birth of Christ in December? The incarnation of the Lord Jesus is, in my opinion, one of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith, and so we can and should study and rejoice in the birth of Christ anytime and all the time. Now, there are, are certain people throughout history uh, who have changed the course of history by their lives, whether for the better or for the worse. And I think of Alexander the Great, who, who conquered the known world in a matter of 13 years and established Greek culture that still affects us here today. I think of George Washington, you know, the first president and, and the general of the American army that has now become the greatest and most powerful nation in the world to this day. I think of Charles Darwin, whose theory of evolution has been widely adopted and largely resulted in the moral decline of the Western world and the, the rejection of God and the devaluation of man. I think of Alexander Fleming, who discovered penicillin, which has been attributed to saving uh, 200 million lives uh, to date. And so all of that to say is that certain figures throughout history have, have changed the course of history by their, life and, by their lives and ideas. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the one who comes out on the very top of that list, the one who has, has changed the course of history more than any other person in the world. And that is, of course, the man, Jesus Christ. So you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We're looking at verses 1 to 20 this morning. It says this, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, the, who is Christ the Lord. 
and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. And when the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. This is the word of the Lord. So I've titled this sermon, The Birth That Changed the World. You know, I think it can be hard for us as humans with our our fallible and, and finite minds to really grasp the full glory and impact of the birth of Christ. See, the idea of the, the almighty God becoming a, a newborn crying baby, the idea of Christ being born in the flesh but not stained by the flesh, the idea that if this moment had not, had not happened, all of humanity would be lost and separated from God for all eternity. That is a lot for us as, as sinful, fallible humans to wrap our heads around. You know, there have been some big events in history, but nothing comes close to the birth of Jesus Christ. It reminds me of a song that I like to listen to around Christmas time. Maybe you've heard it. It's called, Mary, Did You Know? And in that song, Mary is, is being asked the, that question over and over again. Mary, did you know? Did you know that he would walk on water? Did you know that uh, because of him the deaf will hear, the dead will live, the dumb will speak, the, the lame will leap? Did you know that the child that you delivered would soon deliver you? Did you know that when you kiss that little face of your baby, you kiss the very face of God? And so it asked this question, Mary, did you know? And at first when I would hear that song, I thought to myself, well, duh, of course Mary knows. The angel very clearly told her. But then I thought, well, it would have been hard for her to comprehend the full extent of what Christ had come to do. You know, just as, as disciples who witnessed Christ and, and knew and proclaimed him to be the Messiah before his death, you know, they still didn't fully understand what that meant, and they had already seen it all unfolding. They didn't know that Jesus was going to come and change the world in the way that he did. And this morning, that's what we're going to be looking at. Three ways that the birth of Christ changes things. Three ways the birth of Christ changes things. And these, these changes stretch far and wide, you know, from having a universal effect on all spheres of life, all around the globe, to having a, a personal effect in each and every 
heart of us sitting in this room. And so let's get into it. The, the first thing that the birth of Christ changes is that it changes what it means to be a king. It changes what it means to be a king. Now let me take some time to develop this. Luke says here in verses 1 to 3, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went out, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now here we're, we're introduced to a very important person, Caesar Augustus. If you were living at that time and anyone asked you if there was anyone that was more important than Caesar Augustus, the answer would have been no, there isn't. You see, Caesar Augustus, formerly known as Octavian, was the first emperor to be given the name Augustus. And that name means holy or revered one. It was a name that was only reserved for gods. And it was Augustus who took Rome from being a republic of the people to an empire, making him the founder of the Roman Empire and the first and greatest Roman emperor. You see, he reformed and transformed Rome in many ways. He, he developed the, the intricate tax system that kept the empire running. He built and rebuilt infrastructure like no other ruler had before. He established military dominance by conquering the remaining military th threats like Cleopatra and Mark Antony. He crushed rebellions from inside Rome itself. And he established something that was known as Pax Romana, which you might have heard before. That means Roman peace. This idea that the empire entered under this, this time of peace uh, when Augustus was ruling. Now, it was a dark peace, the kind of peace that comes when you know that there is a severe punishment when you step out of line, and so you, you behave. But nonetheless, the empire was stable and prosperous like it had never been before. And so Caesar Augustus, who is mentioned here by Luke, was truly the, the father and the mastermind of the greatest empire to exist to that day. And he's known to have said at the end of his life, I found Rome a, a city of bricks, and I left it a city of marble. And so he was, in terms of a, a military leader and an emperor, he was, he was a wonderful, revered emperor in the eyes of the Romans. Now the question is, is Luke's mentioning of Augustus here important? As I was reading this, I was thinking, is he merely just stating a historical fact or, or a timeline marker for Mary and Joseph's journey to Bethlehem? Or is there, is there more to the mention of this mighty emperor and king? Now, I think one of the beauties of the Bible is that there is often more than what we first might think. You see, Augustus and Christ are going to be compared here. I was surprised to find out as I was reading up for this sermon that Augustus himself, at his birth, was called a savior. That Augustus had created peace throughout all the known world. That Augustus was 
Lord and ruler of the Roman Empire. And now if you move your eyes a little bit further down on the page to verse 11, what are the things that are said about Christ? Well, Christ is called a Savior, Christ is called the Lord, and Christ is called the one who will bring peace on earth among those whom he is well pleased. And so we see there are similarities between these two men, and yet the two men couldn't be more different. See, one was born and raised in a palace among the rich and the educated and the powerful and the wealthy, while the other, we are told, is what? Well, verse 7, wrapped in swaddling clothes and placed in a manger because there was no place in the inn. One spent his life being served by those he had authority over, while the other one came not to be served, but to serve. One established his kingship over his enemies by sending them to the cross, while the other established his kingship by voluntarily going to the cross in the place of his enemies. One lies dead in the grave today, and the other reigns and lives and rules forever. You see, we have before us in this passage two kings, two kingdoms, two different stories, and two different outcomes. Augustus's kingdom is read about in our history textbooks. Christ's kingdom is spread throughout the world and continues to grow and thrive and will thrive until the day that Christ returns. See, Christ changes what it means to be a king, and he changes what it means to be a kingdom people. I think there are two points of application for us here. First, the king and the kingdom is built on humility. I want you to think for a second on the idea of the incarnation, which I mentioned earlier. See, in the incarnation, you have the creator, sustainer, and upholder of the universe becoming a a tiny and helpless baby. You have the the all-knowing one needing to learn knowledge. You have the all-powerful one entering into a state of weakness. You have the one who is completely independent of all people and all things, sleeping and feeding at the breast of his mother, because if he doesn't, he won't survive. You have the one who spoke all of creation into existence, now lying there speechless until he learns how to speak. I think Philippians 2 explains it much better than I can. It says, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. See, the, the incarnation, God becoming man, is the greatest act of humility that has and will ever exist. And then to, to add to that, the form of, of man that Christ took was not some mighty king in the palaces of Rome or some revered priest in the temple of Jerusalem, but it's as a, a little child in the small town of Bethlehem and in a wet and smelly and cold stable 
reserved for the animals. See, Jesus enters into the grime and the dirtiness of our world and all that it offers. And this, this really serves as an analogy for something. It serves as an analogy for what Christ has done in our hearts. See, our hearts are like that stable. They are foul and rotten and dark and, and hard and cold. And yet the holy and pure and righteous and good God enters in and redeems us from it. And just as Christ was humble, we need to be humble and admit our sin, and Christ will come, and he will make us new. Remember the story of the two people praying before the Lord. The one man prays and says, thank you, Lord, that I am not like this other man. And, and the tax collector is standing there, and he prays and just says, Lord, have mercy on a sinner like me. That is how the kingdom of God is built, by people coming and humbling themselves before the Lord. Now, second point of application from this is that the powers at be in this world are not in control. The powers at be in this world are not in control. Notice what's happening here. Augustus, to exercise his rule and lordship over uh, his subjects, decides to conduct a census. And the purpose for conducting a census is for the purpose of taxation. So, you can, so that you know how many people there are, you know how much you need to tax, so you can fund your, your projects that you're planning. He's trying to, to exercise control over his people. But the irony of it all is that in doing so, what is Augustus doing? He is serving the divine plan of God. You see, 700 years earlier, the prophet Micah had prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so God now uses the decree of Caesar Augustus and his attempt to control his subjects to ensure the fulfillment of that prophecy would be met, which was just one piece of the puzzle to Christ becoming one day the King of kings and Lord of lords. And really, that should give us, give us hope. You know, the powers of this world think that they're in control of what's going on. And at times, it, it seems like that is exactly the case. But in reality, even the, the great and mighty Caesar Augustus is serving the divine plan of God. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says it well. The king's heart, the king's desires, the king's longings, his, his mind, his decisions, it is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. See, Justin Trudeau, Joe Biden, Klaus Schwab, Vladimir Putin, whoever you want to name, none of them are outside of the control of God. You know, the great king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, said it well. After he was humbled by the Lord, given back his senses, he says this, The Lord does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can stand back his hand or say to him, What 
have you done? And so, don't lose hope. It's easy to look at the world and, and lose hope and think that all control has been lost. But Christ is king, God is in control, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of God. Now on to our second point. We see that the birth of Christ changes our relationship before God. The birth of Christ changes our relationship before God. Look at verses 8 to 12. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now, we get a change of scenery here in our story. We, we leave the stable where Jesus has just been born, and now we find ourselves on kind of the outskirts of town in a field with a bunch of shepherds. And you can imagine what this would have been like. The shepherds are sitting there around the fire trying to stay warm, maybe one or two of them starting to doze off, when all of a sudden this, this bright and magnificent light and holy creature appears before them. And immediately the shepherds do what everybody does, what everybody's done so far in the, the um, first chapter of Luke. They, they begin to fear and tremble. They probably think that they're going to, to die, that God is bringing judgment upon them. But then a voice comes from the light and says the same thing that he said to Zechariah, the same thing that he said to Mary, fear not, I bring you good news of great joy. And now, as we're reading this, I know one of the questions that, that comes to my mind is, why are the angels announcing this to the shepherds? I mean, was it just the fact that the shepherds were the only ones awake at this hour of the day? Was it that they were just the nearest in proximity? Is there any importance to the angels appearing to the shepherds, or is that, is that just a coincidence? Well, I think there's two reasons why he appears to the shepherds. First, it's because Jesus himself is to be a shepherd. In Micah 5, verse 4, we're told that the Messiah will tend and shepherd God's flock. And then again in Ezekiel 34, verse 23, God says, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them he will tend them and be their shepherd. And so just as the, the wise men and kings from the east come and visit the king of kings, so too the shepherds now come to visit the shepherd of shepherds. Jesus called in 1 Peter 5 the chief shepherd. Jesus in John 10 calls himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And so that's the, the first reason that Luke is setting up this idea of, of Christ as uh, the shepherd over God's people. And a second reason, I think, is to show that Jesus is the king of the average people, not just the high 
and mighty. See, earlier in the passage, we have the mention of Augustus and Quirinius, two powerful men. But then in contrast, we have now some lowly shepherds who on the the ladder of social importance don't rank much higher than, than lepers of the day. And yet, who is the one that the birth is announced to? It's not the great and mighty emperor. It's not the governor of Syria. It's the low and humble shepherds. And this really sets the tone for Jesus' ministry. Jesus will say early on to his disciples as he's calling them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so you see social privilege being one of the the somebodies in this world, it doesn't mean anything to God. God doesn't look at all of your worldly accomplishments and say, wow, this guy is, is decorated. I want him to be on my team. No, as I said, it's, it's the humble, the meek, the poor in spirit who are called blessed by Jesus and who are called the children of God. It's like 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. And that is because it is the lowly, the weak, and the despised who recognize that they need help. And it is the lowly and weak and despised who are not going to boast in themselves, but boast only in the Lord. It's for someone who, who recognizes that they need a Savior. See, in verse 11, Jesus is giving, given three titles that we talked about. Savior, Christ, and Lord. And Christ can only be Savior, Christ, and Lord to someone who recognizes that they need a Savior and that they are not Lord. You see, by By even saying that Jesus is Savior, one key thing needs to be admitted. That you are a a lost and helpless sinner and that you need to be saved. But that's a hard thing to do. And that's why when you talk to a lot of people that aren't Christians, you know, many of them will admit that Christ was a good teacher. Many of them will admit that, that Christ was, you know, a mover and shaker. He stood up to people in the world. Many of them will admit that Christ was an example of love that we should follow. But few will actually acknowledge that Jesus is the Savior. That the reason he came was not simply to give us an example and to teach us how to live morally, but to die on our behalf because we ourselves were too sinful to do anything about our broken and helpless state. And even less people will accept the second title of Jesus, that he is Lord. You see, the saying, Jesus is Lord, carries so much weight to it. To say Jesus is Lord is to say that I am not Lord, and that my life is completely surrendered to the will and good pleasure of Christ. And he is 
free now to command me to do whatever he sees fit. (coughs) Saying Jesus is Lord means that you give up the right to do as you will and you submit to the commands of Christ above all. See, there was a, a reason that the statement, that this statement, Jesus Lord, got early Christians in trouble. Because to say Jesus is Lord is to say that Caesar is not Lord. And to say that Caesar is not Lord is to say that there is another king who holds power over Caesar. And to do that was to commit treason against the empire, and it was to be punished. See, the statement, Christ is Lord, is central to what it means to be a Christian. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, there is no such thing as a Christian who believes Jesus is Savior but will not submit to him as Lord. You can't have one without the other. But I do want you to keep in mind that this is, is wonderful news. You know, this isn't news that should cause us to run away and hide. This is, the angel says, good news of great joy. You know, if we are Lord of our lives, look at where that has brought us. Every time we try to, to rule our lives according to our will and not God's will, it only leads to pain and sorrow and destruction and sin. But it is good news that Christ has come to save us from our sins and now to rule over us as a good and gracious king. Now, there is this, this cosmic party that is going on in heaven that we read about here as a multitude of angels appear. You know, the angels are, are rejoicing. The shepherds are rejoicing. Mary and Joseph are rejoicing because this is the, the greatest thing that could ever happen for humanity. This is the only way that we can be saved from our sins. And so we rejoice with great joy at the birth of Christ and that he is Savior and that he is Lord and that we can be reconciled to God. And so that's the second point, that the birth of Christ changes our relationship to God. And now the third and final point, we're going to see how the birth of Christ changes our response to God. It changes our response to God. Look at verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory be to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. And then down in verse 20 it says, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God, for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told to them. So we see that the first response to the birth of Christ is to bring praise and glory to God. And you've got two groups glorifying God here. First you have the angels. And you have one angel at first, and then all of a sudden you have a multitude of angels completely filling the sky. A multitude means not just a lot of number, it means an uncountable number. There is a multitude of angels singing forth a song of praise 
to the Lord. You see, the angels have been watching this story unfold since the very beginning. Angels are like the ultimate people watchers. They, They saw the fall of man. They saw the flood that destroyed all of life. They saw Noah, the the second uh, Adam, also fail uh, when he was to be the head of a a new people. They saw Israel's inability to keep God's law. They saw their continual rejection of the prophets. They saw their exile into Babylon. They've seen this whole story of God unfold ever since its beginning. And so far, the story has really been a tragedy up to this point. But now they see that the tides are turning and that God's perfect plan is unfolding before them. The prophecies and the types and the shadows long ago foretold are now being fulfilled in the birth of this child. It's like one of those superhero movies where literally everything that could go wrong is going wrong. But then all of a sudden, the superhero arrives and saves the people. Well, the angels are really witnesses to the greatest superhero story of all time. And the only thing that they can do in response to that is to praise and glorify God, for He is worthy. And we see the same response in the shepherds. The shepherds listen to the message of the angels, and they see this display of glorifying God. And so verse 16 says that they went in haste. They went right away, quickly, to find Mary and Joseph. They didn't waste any time. They they knew that if, if this was truly the Savior, the Lord that was promised, that they couldn't miss that. They couldn't miss that. And there's a point of application here for us. You know, is that you? Do you have a a hastiness to run to God? Is there an an urgency in your walk with God? When you read your Bible, do you say, oh, that's a nice story, and then go on the rest of your day without acknowledging it or or without acknowledging God? Is the Bible, is prayer just something to be checked off your list? Is Is there any longing or earnestness or excitement for you in the gospel. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I miss that in my relationship with God right now. I remember when I was in university, I was a, I'd been a Christian for about three or four years, and I was, I was passionate to learn all that I could about my Lord and Savior. And it was it was joyful and exciting. I, you know, I, f- I felt like Mary here in verse 19 when it says that she, she treasured up all of these things and she pondered them in her heart. But that feeling of, of joy and passion and excitement in the Lord, it can fade. And it's not because Christ has faded in His magnificence or glory, but it's because we take our eyes off of the magnificence of Christ. And maybe that's because of our own sin. Maybe that's because of our suffering. Or maybe it's because of, you know, the busyness of life. 
But we can get back to that when we return our eyes upon Jesus and his work on the cross. I'm reminded of the chorus of that old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Actually, one of the songs we said today talks about fixing our eyes upon Jesus. It says this, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so we need to be like these shepherds. Don't brush off the message and the word of God. Make haste and believe in it and and practice it and cherish it up in your hearts. And of course, turn to God and glorify and praise him because of it. And now let's look at one final response of the shepherds. Look at verse 17 and 18. It says this, And when they saw it, that is when they came and saw Christ, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. See, the birth of Christ is so glorious that we cannot keep it to ourselves. We must share it with others. The shepherds recognize that if it is true that Jesus is Lord and Savior, people need to hear about him. All of humanity has a a deadly disease of sin that is killing people every single day. But guess what? There is a cure. And the cure is the message of the gospel. And Christians are the only ones who possess the cure. Unbelievers aren't going to stumble across the cure if no one tells them about it. Maybe God is sovereign, he can do that, but that's not the normal way that he works. And so if we are the ones that, that have the key, that have the cure, why are we so afraid to tell others about it? I mean, is it, is it fear of man? Is it fear of social exclusion? Is it, is it fear that maybe you won't know what to say? Or maybe it's deeper than that. Maybe we just don't care about people the way that we should. Maybe we truly, we don't truly recognize the punishment that's awaiting those who we love who do not know Christ. In my life, I know I've, I've failed in this area. I have people I love who God has granted me multiple opportunities to share the gospel with. And I've squandered those opportunities. But in God's grace, there will be more opportunities. That we repent of of our fear and our failure, and then we move on to the next opportunity that God provides for us. And so my challenge to you is this. Don't squander the next one. Don't squander the next one. Jesus has come. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Lord. God is worthy to be praised and glorified. And so let people know that. Now, the birth of Christ must change how we respond to God. And so to close, we see that on that first Christmas morning in that cold stable lying in a manger, we didn't just have the birth of some random child. 
This was the child who would change the whole world by changing our hearts. And for all of us here today, we need to ask ourselves, has Jesus changed my heart? Maybe your answer is yes, in which case, sing alongside the angels, glory be to God, what grace and mercy God has shown you. Rejoice and praise him as the angels and shepherds did, and then go and live a life that is faithfully proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. But maybe your answer to that is no. You know, Christ has, has not changed my heart. And maybe you're someone who has just never believed in Jesus or wanted anything to do with him your whole life. Or maybe you're someone who has, you know, come to church for 20 years, 30 years, or a child who has been raised in a, a Christian home, but you have never fully given your heart and your mind to Christ as Lord. Well, for both of you, whoever is in that situation, the only response that is acceptable is that of the shepherds. You know, don't waste any more time. Make haste and run to him as Lord and Savior. Do not brush him off any longer. Do not wait for another day or another time. There might not be another day or another time. And so turn away from your sinful ways. Submit to him as Lord, as the, as the chief shepherd, as the good shepherd who wants to lead you into beside still waters and to, to pastures of green grass, will bring you into his fold and grant you everlasting life. For unto us this day a child is born, a Savior, Christ our Lord. Come and believe in him. Let's pray.